Hello, and welcome to episode 216 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik, here as always with... Jason Rabinowitz. How's it going, Ian? It's going well, Jason. How are you, sir? I'm good. I'm excited about our guest this week. We have a fantastic show this week. I was so thrilled to have this particular guest on, and I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. And a little bit later in the show, our listeners will get to enjoy that conversation as well. This week, we have... And I want to get this title right because it's a great one. It's a long For, one. It's a long one. <laughs> Business cards are, are very large. Former National Transportation Safety Board Chair and current Executive Director of the Boeing Center for Aviation and Aerospace Safety at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University and current member of the Independent Safety Review Team for the Federal Aviation Administration, Robert Sumwalt joins us on the program a little bit later on. We're talking with Robert about his participation in the FAA's safety review team, but also aviation safety in general, how things have changed, how they haven't over the past few years, and where he sees the state of aviation safety in the US specifically, but more generally as well. So a really good conversation coming up just a bit later in the show. But first, we have just a bonkers story from the get-go. And we have resolution on that particular story. Jason, did we talk about this? I don't know if we did. I don't think we did. Or did we take the decision? I think when it happened, we may have taken the decision- We intentionally ignored it. To ignore it. But now, <laughs> now that he's probably going to jail, we can talk about it. Prison, hopefully. Yes. So federal prison. Federal prison. There's a big distinction between jail and possibly 20 years in federal prison. Well, so so, that right. Yeah, we'll talk about the plea agreement because the headline number is much bigger than what will probably actually happen. But a YouTuber known for his aviation related videos named Trevor Jacob took a Taylorcraft BL65 up into the California desert or above the California desert and mountains and was flying. And what he said happened is that the aircraft developed engine trouble, couldn't find a place to land. Oh no, I'm going to have to jump out of the airplane in my parachute. How convenient that he just happened to have a parachute. Weird. I mean, and and I get a, a lot of general aviation pilots, especially in aircraft like this, will wear a parachute and that like I don't want to prejudice people against taking they safety. They generally precautions. don't have a dozen GoPros scattered around the aircraft though. Generally. But in this particular case, anyone who watched the video said, huh, that kind of looks staged. Those cameras are all very conveniently located. And so he said, no, 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 this is what happened. The engine lost power. I tried to get it going again. It wouldn't. I couldn't find a safe place to land. So I had to bail. Well, to say people took interest in this suspiciously would be an understatement because all sorts of investigations took place. And by the way, this incident happened November 24th, 2021. So this is a year and a half ago at this point. And yeah. To say the NTSB, the FAA, and all sorts of other law enforcement agencies were suspicious would be definitely an understatement. Yeah. So the NTSB began an investigation. The FAA began an investigation. And 
so I guess to his not not to his credit, but as part of the facts of the case, he contacted the NTSB and said, well, said something. The NTSB said, okay, find the plane and make sure that nobody touches it so that we can investigate. Oh, and this is where it gets fun. Yeah. So he said that he didn't know where the aircraft wreckage was located. That's a lie. He had that a friend was come a pick lie. him up at that location. So obviously he knew where it was, but it gets better. Yeah. He had retrieved all of the camera footage from the wreckage. Then not only did he know where the wreckage was, he moved the wreckage. And let me summarize this just by flat out reading two paragraphs from the US District Attorney, Central District of California, their press release. In the weeks following the plane crash, Jacob lied to investigators that he did not know the wreckage's location, according to the plea agreement. In fact, on December 10th, 2021, Jacob and a friend flew by helicopter to the wreckage site. There, Jacob used straps to secure the wreckage, which the helicopter then lifted and carried to Rancho Sisquac in Santa Barbara County, where it was loaded onto a trailer and attached to Jacob's pickup truck. It gets better. Kind of serial killer-ish, actually. But Jacob drove the location to Lompoc City Airport and unloaded it into a hangar. Okay, that's something. He then cut up and destroyed the airplane wreckage, and then over the course of a few days, deposited the detached parts of the wrecked airplane into trash bins at the airport and elsewhere, which he admitted in his plea agreement was done with the intent to obstruct federal authorities from investigating the plane crash. So not only did he know where the wreckage was, and not only did he lie to investigators about knowing that, he took a helicopter to rescue the remnants of the aircraft. And then I swear, I've seen this in movies and TV shows. I think it was an Archer, actually, where they intentionally, you know, did serial killer things and then disposed of whatever was left in different garbage cans all over the city. That's basically what this was. Not a good liar. Not a good airplane serial killer, murderer here, I guess. I think that analogy takes a little far for my- I mean, he recovered the body, he chopped up the body, and he disposed of the body throughout the airport in a way to get investigators off his tail. And it it did not work. But I don't know. I see some analogy here. I mean, okay. But in any case, that's what happened. And so now he has pled guilty- to basically covering up what happened and impeding a federal investigation. That's the fun part. They're not actually throwing the book at him for the act of jumping out the aircraft, I guess, or intentionally crashing it. They are throwing the book at him for lying to investigators and for obscuring, I guess, their investigations. So had he not gone through the act of covering up the body and disposing of it, they may not have had any valid charges on him because I guess it would be very difficult to actually prove that the aircraft did not have mechanical issues and that he did not have to jump out of the aircraft. But by going through these overt actions of disposing of the aircraft, it gave the investigators the mechanism to actually charge him. And by the way, the FAA revoked his pilot license way back already in April 2022. So that has already happened. So the penalties for the crimes that he's pleading guilty to include the possibility of 20 years in prison, a three-year period of supervised release, a fine of $250,000 or twice the gross gain or gross loss resulting from the offense. So I guess it depends on how much he 
made from the video and a mandatory special assessment of $100. Oh, that's that last $100. Yeah. So federal sentencing guidelines are interesting. But like I said, at kind of the beginning of our discussion here, the plea agreement is likely much less than 20 years, uh, but we'll have to wait to see exactly what that comes out to. Don't do something stupid for video and then lie to federal investigators about it. I guess it's yeah, just the moral all, of the story. All this like, to feed the, the content machine is just for a sponsored spot for a wallet. Yeah, it's just that's the best part. Oh my! It's I <laughs> bet it's probably not even wallet. a good wallet. Come on, but oh, yeah. if you're the wallet company, like you got your clicks, and what marketing executive at the wallet company got fired? Oh my! Goodness. Probably got promoted because uh, the amount of clicks this generated. Yeah. And the video is still up today, I think. But yeah, happy ending to someone who really huh. deserves to go to prison. Yeah, just not cool. In so many ways, not cool. Let's move on with coverage of Indian aviation and a new story coming out of the Go First bankruptcy. So the operational stuff first. They're planning on restarting all of their activities on the 24th of May with just 23 aircraft. Most of their aircraft will remain grounded either because they don't want to fly them or they can't fly them because they remain grounded because of the Pratt & Whitney engine issues. Information has come out about how much the airline owes lessors and its banking partners in general. They owe nearly $800 million to banks, $92 million to lessors. Lessors are are trying to recoup their money. Remember we talked about last week where they had tried to deregister the aircraft to get them back so they could make money off the aircraft. The bankruptcy prevents the lessors from gaining their aircraft back and GoFirst can continue to operate them while under bankruptcy protection. Now, here's the weird thing. So part of that $800 million owed to banks is owed to Deutsche Bank. And how much money GoFirst owes to Deutsche Bank is an interesting thing because GoFirst is owned by a conglomerate owned by the Wadia family. And a separate Wadia family subsidiary had taken out a $300 million loan from Deutsche Bank. They then put $200 million of that into a bank account and said, Deutsche Bank, we have $200 million in the bank. Can you give us another loan using this money to secure the new loan for funding for Go Air at the time, Go First? I'm already confused. So they used loaned money to secure a fresh loan like three subsidiaries away. So all of this is to say it's slightly unclear how much money is actually owed to these banks and which banks are owed money first. So this comes into play in the bankruptcy proceedings, which creditors take precedence. And once that's determined, that will determine who gets paid first and that could affect the future of the airline. So some really interesting financial stuff going on there. And we'll post a link in the show notes to the Indian Economic Times article that kind of lays all this out. I will say over the past couple of weeks, I've gotten rather deep in the weeds on Indian business publications looking at a lot of these because a lot of Indian airlines are having a hard time at a time when the Indian market for airlines is strengthening, which to me, it's just kind of like the perfect storm of airlines are struggling while the country with the world's largest population is finally going, okay, now we're ready to fly. Maybe not. 
Maybe not. SpiceJet is also having issues. Some of their lessers, five different lessers want five different aircraft to turn all 737s. So they're trying to delist those. SpiceJet says, no, we're not going bankrupt. We're not declaring bankruptcy. We're not going down that road that go first is going down. But half their fleet's inactive at the moment. That's not great. Not great. And Jet Airways, which seemed so promising just a few short months ago, is really in for a bad time. They've continually set back. So the new Jet Airways is responsible for repaying creditors of the old Jet Airways in part. And they've continued to push those payments back. They also have to deal with the fact that their air operator certificate expires in, well, if you're listening to the podcast on Friday, today. So it was extended on the 20th of May, 2022 for one year. So Friday is their last day to renew that. So I think we're going to know whether or not Jet Airways is ever going to fly again by Friday. Man, all of this makes Air India sound like a well-run, healthy airline. And I guess management there is just kind of nonchalantly walking around whistling happily. It's just- I mean, they, they are now. Yeah. I mean, and the turnaround at Air India is nothing to sneeze at, I don't think. I mean, I think- No, no. They've gotten it, quite it's serious just about- that, that well, Air, think, Air India yeah, is yeah. suddenly like the most well-run airline in India, and everyone else is <laughs> Vistara won't exist shortly. SpiceJet and GoFirst are circling the drain. Jet Airways may not exist by the time this podcast comes out for real this time. Interesting market. Let's just say that. Yeah. So let's move on to some aviation safety stuff before we enjoy our conversation with Robert. Somewhat. Two things happened this week. One, which is just incredible to see is a Cargo Lux 747 lost its inner right gear bogey during an emergency landing back in Luxembourg. They touched down and the thing popped off. And it's on video. And it's on video. Link in the show notes. You wouldn't believe it if it wasn't on video because that's not supposed to happen. No. So I am thoroughly looking forward to reading that investigative report. And I believe that yeah. was an in-air return, right? They had taken off. Yeah, and they then, were coming oh, to Chicago. Oh, they had well, taken they off. Did, they did not make it. They did not make it to Chicago, no. Yeah, it was a Cargo Lux flight from Luxembourg to Chicago. They stopped their climb not long after departure. They circled for a little bit, dumped some fuel, and then returned for an emergency landing. And the gear itself was the reason for the return. When you watch the video, look at the orientation of that inner right main gear. It's pointing the wrong way. Yes, will be very interesting to read the report on what happened there because if you've seen videos and if you're listening to this podcast, I'm sure you have videos of hard landings and aircraft doing things to its landing gear that you wouldn't think is possible. It takes a lot for a landing gear to just shear off like that. The forces on it must have been kind of ridiculous or it was very broken by the time they touched down. So we'll right. keep everyone updated when we eventually find out what exactly happened there because that is not supposed to happen ever. No. No, no, it is not. And then the other story that we're following up on this week is from Nepal. So this was the crash of the Tara Air Twin Otter in, well, almost a year ago now, on the 29th of May, 2022. The aircraft took off from Pokhara and flew into a mountainside. And now we have the final report from the Nepalese Aviation Authority, which lists the probable cause for the flight into the mountainside. 
Yeah, and the probable cause is the flight crew's failure to monitor and maintain the proper course while inadvertently flying into IMC conditions with the Aircraft Terrain Avoidance and Warning System, or TAWS, inhibited, which resulted into a controlled flight into terrain accident. Basically, if you read through some of the news articles or reports, weather was bad as it often is in the area. The the pilot in command didn't want to go, but felt pressured for some reason, either by fellow crew or a passenger. They're, they're not really sure, given that they can't see what happened on board the aircraft. They only have the audio. There were other flights going as well, but unfortunately, the crew got caught in some weather. There were complicating factors such as the terrain avoidance and warning system being turned off because apparently it was poorly calibrated or miscalibrated. So it was likely giving them them or past operating crews nuisance alert instead of calibrating that. I guess it was just turned off either in the interim in, or hopefully not in the long term. And as it usually does, all these mitigating or not mitigating, adding up circumstances, unfortunately, led to this accident. Yeah, we'll put a link to the show notes to the final report in the in the show notes so that you can take a look at that if you so choose. But another example of pilots performing a flight when the recording that we have from the CVR kind of lets us know that they didn't necessarily think they should be doing this. Yes, but they did it anyway. Yeah. Well, I think that perfectly sets up the fact that we're about to talk about aviation safety in depth with Robert Sumwalt. So let's take a quick break and we'll come back with our conversation with Robert Sumwalt right after this. Welcome back. After a recent spate of serious incidents, the Department of Transportation and the Federal Aviation Administration are refocusing on improving aviation safety in the U.S., with the FAA's acting administrator, Billy Nolan, recently saying that it's time to tighten the safety net. And so with that in mind, we welcome someone who knows aviation safety like almost no other, former National Transportation Safety Board Chair and current Executive Director of the Boeing Center for Aviation and Aerospace Safety at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University, and now a member of the FAA's newly formed Independent Safety Review Team, Robert Sumwalt. Robert, thank you so very much for joining us today. Ian, thank you so much. It's great to be with you. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining. We've had a lot of interesting guests over the years, but I can safely say with no offense to anyone else that I've been looking forward to this interview probably the most of of any so far. So thank you so much for joining us. Well, gosh, that's quite a compliment. Thank you. But I'm actually very boring. So... Well, I mean, in the best of times, safety is a fairly boring topic. Boring, but un- yeah. Unfortunately, we're not in the best of times. There have been a recent spate of serious incidents that I know that you followed and taken a close look at, as well as, I mean, the NTSB is investigating them now, and the FAA has taken it upon itself. There was a safety summit, which you participated in, and now you are part of the independent safety review team. So what has changed in the U.S. specifically over the past few years that has gotten us to where we are now that these things are necessary to be doing? Yeah, that's a great question. And I'm not sure that I have a good answer for it. I mean, if you look at commercial aviation in the United States, the U.S. airlines have had an exceptional safety record over the past several years, past two decades. But we have, as you pointed out, we have had some runway incursions. We've had some other scary events. 
And so in my mind, I can't really see a common thread woven throughout any of those. And so I think that is of concern, is that we don't really know exactly what the problem is. But I do appreciate the FAA's efforts to really put the spotlight on it and see what we can do better. There is a lot of discussion about a year into the pandemic about concerns, not just among aviation operators, not just among pilots, but also air traffic controllers, maintenance operators, and things like that, where we were seeing warnings coming from the FAA and IASA in Europe and the Australian Transportation Safety Bureau there saying because of the dramatic decrease in kind of that muscle memory response of doing it every day, because there are so many fewer flights that we're concerned there could be an increase in in safety-related incidences. And I'm wondering, do you see that that's part of what's playing into to kind of where we are now? You know, that may be some of the issue on the air traffic side. I understand that the FAA is down maybe 1,000, 1,200, maybe 1,500 controllers right now, and that could be related to the pandemic. But on the pilot side, yes, the airlines are hiring like crazy, and I guess that's a good thing. I was an airline pilot at one time and did that for 24 years. But, you know, I don't really buy that theory that the pandemic is leading to these issues or helping to contribute to these issues that we're seeing with runway incursions with airliners. You know, it doesn't take a pilot a year to wipe the dust off. You know, the pandemic, I mean, officially it ended a few days ago. The declaration, you know, declared the pandemic basically no longer a health problem, health issue, health emergency. But there have been been massive pilot hiring now for the last year and a half. So it does not take a year to get recurrent in an airplane. I would go several weeks uh, without flying because I was doing safety work. And, yeah, the first day I might have been a little rusty. But by the end of the first day, I kind of... I remembered how to do this thing. So I don't really buy that theory about the pandemic leading to these pilot deviations. So what does concern you most? What area are you kind of thinking along the lines of the safety review team that you're now a part of with the FAA? What is the focus or is it just kind of taking a top-down look and starting at the top and working your way down or bottom up for that matter? Yeah, that's, you know, a lot of people think we're going to do be the end all be all for aviation safety. (laughs) And, And that's not really correct. We are focused, we being the independent safety review team, we are focused just on air traffic services offered in the United States. So it's really looking at air traffic control to see if that is operating as optimally as it could. And the committee, the review team is just getting stood up. Our mandate is to have it done by the end of October. There's a lot of work. It'll be a busy summer, but we really are just getting cranked up there. It seems to be the common thread among a lot of these incidents that spurred the the spinning up of this review board was that a lot of these incidents all seem to be runway incursions or a taxiing aircraft not being where it's supposed to be, causing a go-around or, or a pilot flight crew not taking off fast enough as they should be, creating a go-around behind them. Do you have just any gut feeling on why it seems like most of the incidents are happening on the ground rather than being something in the air, or a routing issue or, or just bad piloting. It just seems like it's what mostly just when the aircraft is on the ground. Do you have any theories into 
why that might be the case? You know, it's a really good question, Jason. I just wrote an article for Business and Commercial Aviation magazine on this very topic. And, you know, of the six or seven highly publicized runway incursions that we've seen since the first of the year, I would say that possibly two of them might be ATC related, one in Austin, Texas, and there was another one that might have some ATC involvement. But the rest of them do seem to be originating in the cockpit. And my article really was to say, guys, gals, it's time to get back to basics. Let's make sure that we are maintaining the sterile cockpit. Let's make sure that both pilots are listening to and understanding the taxi clearance. Let's make sure that we are monitoring and backing up each other as we are taxiing and that when we approach an active runway, we suspend all non-monitoring duties, such as loading the flight management computer or doing a checklist, that we suspend non-monitoring tasks until we've made sure that the airplane has stopped short of the runway, or if you're cleared to cross, then you have verified that you are doing what you're supposed to do. So, so yes, I do think that regardless of the underlying issue, you can never go wrong by saying, let's get back to basics. That's a great point, and I feel like that's going to make its way into the final report of the safety review <laughs> team here. Well, we'll see. Kind of taking on Jason's question about the ground-based nature of a lot of these incidents, are there technology improvements or even just the application of existing technologies that you think would be more helpful in ensuring that these don't happen in the future? Yeah, I do think that technology has a lot of promise. I just had recently in the last day or so, I had a briefing from an avionics manufacturer who's working on some artificial intelligence that can help a pilot safely navigate to and from a runway. And I think that there's a lot of promise with technology like that. But it still goes back to the people in the cockpit to make sure that they are properly following the taxi instructions and the whole short instructions and making darn sure that they are really cleared for takeoff. Two of the events have been airplanes actually taking off without clearance. So, you know, those are interesting cases. So to answer your question, yeah, I think that there is technology that offers promise. And I hope that, that technology can be implemented sooner rather than later. And it's a great point since I guess in the rest of our lives, if you're driving a car or even riding a bike, you set navigation and you kind of just go wherever the device in front of you tells you where to go. And we, if you've ever played Microsoft Flight Simulator and done an actual flight, they have an overlay on the taxiways that navigates you where you're supposed to go. And I guess it is just an odd situation where technology navigating the aircraft on the ground lags so far behind everyday life and everything else we do, it would be very interesting to see how the industry could possibly adopt something that would help pilots navigate the more complex airports. I know one of the the major, more popular incidents, I guess I would say, was that American 777 at JFK, where even though American is hubbed at JFK and their pilots are very accustomed to the air traffic control chatter and the taxiway navigation there, it's possible for them to make a mistake. So maybe, yeah, I would love to see something in recommendations about how they can use technology to help pilots 
navigate on the ground rather than just in the air. Well, you are right. And certainly just like automation in the cockpit, flight deck, you know, automation, autopilots, autothrottles, we've seen cases of over-dependence, over-reliance on that. I think it's also important is that as this new technology is rolled out, that we don't become overly dependent on it. We're using it as a as an aid, a guide, not solely the right thing. I think that years ago, there was a probably nationwide advertisement or Allstate or one of the car car insurance companies. And the GPS was uh, saying, you know, turn right. And the guy turned right immediately into a, you know, into a building, into a plate glass window. <laughs> and so I think that we do have to be very careful that we are. We're still using what's between the ears to make sure we're doing the right things. I guess what we're talking about here is really a balance between helpful implementation of technology and still maintaining situational awareness. And like you mentioned, there's no shortage of incidents where the thing that was supposed to help and on balance has certainly increased the safety and efficiency of aviation has led to an incident. So I guess to Jason's point, maybe, you know, ways on the flight deck is not necessarily the best thing. Yeah, but it can certainly be an aid. And certainly I want it to make sure that it points out where the latest speed trap is. (laughs) (laughs) They're going to get a lot of Southwest flights in that regard then. That's right. (laughs) You know, and to Jason's point, I mean, you know, he's talking about American Airlines being, uh, you know, having a a big operation there at, uh, at Kennedy and all. You know, there was this one event, and one event is certainly one too many. But I do think that, that you know, I want to emphasize that most of the time, day in and day out, week in, week out, month in, month out, airplanes in our national airspace system are operating very safely without incident. So uh, I think that it's important to point out the positive side of it as well. And that's probably why these events get so popularized, that we're just so accustomed to this industry being almost ridiculously safe, that that even the hint that something possibly could have gone wrong just gets so reported because we're just so not used to that happening. Yeah, I guess that's a product of our own success. You know, I started reading NTSB accident reports when I was in college, so to to, to indicate my age, I'll just say that was in the uh, in the 70s, in the late 70s, go to the library and read the accident reports and there were, you know, there were several three and four major airline accidents in this country each year. And now, if you look at the last major U.S. airline fatality through a smoking hole, have to go back to November of 2001 when there was an American 587 crashed outside of uh, coming out of Kennedy. And so, and of course, then there was the Colgan Air crash in 2009, which killed 50 people. And then, unfortunately, uh, there was a woman who lost her life in 2009. 18, when a Southwest Airlines had a, uh, it was not really an uncontained engine failure technically, but I'll call it that. It was an engine failure where a piece of uh, shrapnel, a piece of the cowling flew off of the uh, engine and it banged into the side of the fuselage, knocked out a window. And unfortunately, a lady partially went out with that. So if you look at the last smoking hole of a major U.S. carrier, you go back to 2001. If you look at the last regional airline accident. You go back to 2009. So uh, it has been an extraordinary record. And I certainly am knocking on a lot of wood right now 
because we've got to, as I said, one is one too many. The thing I wanted to ask you about specifically into to runway incursions, because that's really what the the most recent collection of incidents has been, either either an actual runway incursion or a potential runway incursion. Looking at the the numbers, there seems to be variation in quarterly variation, variation among different types of carriers, but there's no huge spike. There's no kind of outlier going, oh, this is a, a very new and real problem we have. So I'm wondering, kind of coming from the FAA's perspective and your interactions with them, are they feeling like this is a new problem or is this just something they're going, okay, let's do all we can to understand if there are in fact any new problems or if we just need to reinforce everything we've already learned? You know, I really can't, uh, and I appreciate that question. I really cannot speak for the FAA on what their motivations are, but I think they are trying to do due diligence and making sure that there's nothing out there that they don't know about in terms of how the uh, the functionality of the uh, air traffic control system is operating in the U.S. So let's jump forward to, to October then, when the group's work is is set to, to wrap up. What's the final product going to look like at, at this point, or is that not yet known? That's not yet known. We will have a, a meeting, a teleconference, a Zoom conference uh, this afternoon, and then another one tomorrow afternoon. We've uh, only met once already, and uh, we're just formulating. It will be a busy summer with, I imagine, some visits to air traffic control facilities, meetings, Zoom calls. It's an aggressive time frame. And we all know how the NTSB usually works. You investigate, you make recommendations that are purely recommendations that the FAA can choose to either mandate or unfortunately to the NTSB's dismay often not implement. What happens with this panel since it's not just the NTSB involved here? It's a whole suite of people from all over the industry. What's the, not the outcome, but is anything here, are they recommendations? Are they action items? What's really the Maybe not the output, but are, are they recommendations that the FAA then looks at to implement? Or, or what do you expect to, to happen in October? We're still in the formulative stages of the review team, but I would imagine that it would be a series of recommendations. That's what I would envision it would be. It's not just an exercise to see what we can do. I think we're going to, we've got some very smart people on the review team. I think we'll come up with something actionable for the FAA. The review team, I just want to, to note kind of who else is on the review team. Besides yourself, we've got a former NASA administrator, Charles Bolden Jr., former Airline Pilots Association president, former National Air Traffic Controllers Association executive vice president, FAA chief operating officer, or former FAA chief operating officer, and former FAA administrator. So it's a broad swath collection from, from across the industry. Are you also going to be pulling kind of other folks in to assist with things? Or is it just going to be all of you folks just getting out there and, and spending the summer figuring out what is going on? Yeah, I certainly think we're going to have to pull, pull, uh, pull in uh, experts and interview them, and they will help put the puzzle together for us in terms of laying out the pieces. And then it will be up, up to us to put the pieces together and figure out what needs to be done. So, 
putting the next few months into context, is there anything that you personally are looking forward to looking into further or you already have some inklings in mind of things that you think are threads that you want to pull for, for the next few months? You know, it's like when I was at the NTSB, you don't want to go into something with preconceived notions. You want to allow the facts to speak for themselves and then conduct a, a thorough analysis based on those facts. I think that's the approach that I'm going into this with. We have been speaking with former National Transportation Safety Board Chair and current Executive Director of the Boeing Center for Aviation and Aerospace Safety at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University, Robert Sumwalt. He is spending the summer, a very busy summer it sounds like, as part of the FAA's new independent safety review team. Hopefully we can have you back in the fall and we can hear more about what came out of the panel's work. Well, thank you. We'd be delighted to do that. Thank you so much. This is not a paid endorsement for Flight Radar 24, but before we went on the air, I told you that I, I love it. I have it on my phone when I'm uh, Embry-Riddle at home at, at Embry-Riddle. I will look and see if that's one of our birds flying above. And so uh, I enjoy very much what I get from Flight Radar 24. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure Thank to be so with much. you. Thank you so much for joining us. Robert Sumwalt, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome back. I thought that, you know, and one of the things that we kind of talked about is the work of the FAA's independent safety review team. And obviously, they haven't really done much yet. They just got started in last week. So I'm really keen to have Robert back in the fall to discuss what they found out and what the FAA is going to do about what they found out. That to me is the, the most interesting question. Going to be a long summer for that group. Good luck to them. We begin, I guess, this summer with the IATA annual general meeting, which is taking place in Istanbul. Jason, I know you've attended that in past years, but this year, I think the big news coming out of that is going to be a very large order from Turkish Airlines, most likely for Boeing jets, at least initially with Airbus to follow later. The airline CEO said they want to order 600 airplanes. That's must either be a very aspirational number or representing astronomical growth plans for Turkish, who only has 332 aircraft in its fleet right now. So ordering twice the amount of aircraft that they already have, many of which are, are not old. They have 16 787s, they've got 12 A350s. There are quite a number of older aircraft that do, of course, need replacing dozens and dozens of 777s and A330s that are getting up there in age and are nearing the age of retirement, but definitely more interesting, I think, on the narrow body side. They have hundreds of aircraft that are getting up there as well. But yeah, that's got to be a lot of focus on expansion and not just not just replacing the existing fleet. And, and we've talked recently about how there are other airlines in that region who are really, really keen on expanding and getting into that whole connecting traffic thing that Emirates has so far really dominated and Turkish is really, I wouldn't say quietly dominated a part of two, but it's pretty clear that Turkish and the people behind that airline want to expand dramatically. Yeah. I mean, we talked not last episode, maybe it was the episode before about Turkish's announcement that they're basically going to double the size of their fleet and they're going to 
expand their reach, double their route map, start flying to all of these different places by the middle of the next decade. And 600 aircraft sounds like a lot, but when you look at their plans for route growth and the number of passengers that they want to carry, yeah, that makes sense. So so the breakdown looks like it's going to be 400 narrow-body aircraft and 200 wide-body aircraft, which it's still an incredible amount of planes. And to think that ordering now, you're looking at deliveries into the mid-2030s. That's an incredible amount of planes. It is. Oh, and we mentioned Emirates, but I, I feel compelled to also mention Qatar. We didn't have this in the show notes, but Qatar, I guess, is finally over the the spat with Airbus, and it took delivery of its oh, first yes, yes, A three fifty since it December twenty twenty. A seven ANT and A three fifty one thousand was delivered to Qatar just this week, the first in like two and a half years, which is mm-hmm. pretty pretty ridiculous for an airline of uh, Qatar's size that has so many aircraft on order, which I guess are now all reinstated. Everyone's happy. Including Boeing, which was able to offer some of the 737 MAX aircraft because of the canceled A321neo order on the Airbus side. So Qatar is now operating the, the 737 MAX on new deliveries because those were the planes that were available. I mean, what a series of events leading to Qatar operating these aircraft. Qatar had to have its issues with Airbus leading to the cancellation of the 321s, and then Russia invades Ukraine. So the aircraft orders going to S7 were canceled, which then in turn, those aircraft were able to be delivered to Qatar. So a whole lot of things had to happen in order for this current set of circumstances. But here we are again. There is no single cause and effect. No. It's not the first time Qatar has taken delivery of 7.3 Maxes. They were in the past delivered to Qatar via its Italian thing. What was it? It's Italian thing. The corpse of Meridiana. Air Italy. Italy. That's it. I just said that. Oh, I did not hear you. No, you didn't. I didn't. Well, there you go. (laughs) So second time around. But they're actually Qatar-branded aircraft this time. There you go. Yeah, these are fresh deliveries. And so things are moving along once again between both Qatar and, and Airbus and good luck to them. And, and hopefully, they've, they're moving past their problems. Not moving past their problems are the WestJet and Swoop pilots and the management of WestJet. 1,800 pilots at WestJet and Swoop, which is the low-cost subsidiary, are set to walk off the job at 3 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time on Friday. The union gave their strike notice. And unfortunately, today, the the CEO of WestJet said that the two parties are still very far apart. So by the time you listen to this podcast on Friday, WestJet pilots could be on strike and that would be rather unfortunate. But it does seem like sales have already been impacted. People are already avoiding the airline. So it it seems like people think that this strike is going to happen. That sucks. I hope yeah. the pilots get whatever it is that they're after and passengers won't be inconvenienced because there there is not a ton of option in the Canadian market. And there are some startups people can book themselves onto, but if you have to rebook yourself on Air Canada at the last moment, it is going to cost you. Yeah. So hopefully there is a last minute deal, but right now they're pretty far apart. Jason, you flagged this one. 
and I thought this was was rather interesting. Not only do we have to to worry about you know operating issues and things like that, you have to worry about not operating the aircraft, especially when it comes to the A380, which has had I think no shortage of wing spar issues in its history. Yeah, we definitely know that airlines take deep consideration into the hours flown and then the, the cycle time, which is how many times the aircraft is pressured and depressurized. But now, a whole new term was coined by IASA, who introduced the concept of factored time on ground, or FTOG. This comes to us from Aviation Week, where apparently the extended groundings of the A380s exacerbated some of the the wing crack issues they've had. And turns out that, and I'm quoting here, the biggest driver is temperature and the second is moisture. And a lot of these aircraft were stored in some very hot, hopefully not very humid places. But yeah, just interesting that now not only will you have to keep track for maintenance reasons of how long this aircraft was in the air for, but how long was it on the ground for, which is just... It's complicated. The Airbus A380 has had a very long, complicated history with wing cracks and all sorts of other related issues. But man, having to coin an entirely new term to, to new talk term. about how long an aircraft was grounded for and how that impacts cracks on the wing is just probably not something anyone had in mind when the first A380 rolled off the production line. Yeah. It never ceases to amaze me that these things, you know, you, there's always something new to think about. And I also like the phrases that they used to describe the cause of some of these cracks hydrogen assisted cracking or hydrogen embrittlement. Mm, man, I read that earlier and wanted to mention it. So thank you for bringing that up because <laughs> I, I caught that too. And that, that's a good one. But yeah, for sure. Airlines that had grounded the A380 and are bringing them back in service are having to deal with this primarily coming to mind, BA, I know, stored them in Madrid, I think. And it is quite hot there in the summer. So yeah, a lot of aircraft, a lot of A380s are going to have to look deeply into and calculate a whole new thing. That's just fun. There you go. Let's close out the show with some order and operations news. First note is the C919, the first one that was delivered to Chinese Eastern Airlines, is back in the air or flew for the first time in a few months. It had previously been sent back to the manufacturer's airport in Shanghai. Today, it flew back to its operational airport in Shanghai with the airline. So we'll, we'll see if that means they're putting it back into the schedule anytime soon or or what. It remains a mystery. As John Astor at the Air Current noted, it remains a mystery why it was sent back to the manufacturer. I have a feeling that we'll never know. We'll never know. This is an interesting one because I'm still, you know, a few years on seeing Singapore Airlines operate narrow body aircraft. I'm still getting used to that. But they've kind of reconfigured a bit of their order book and are dropping some of the max orders, but they're up gauging their orders for the largest version of the 787, the 787-10. Jason, you flagged this one to Chamor. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense when you think about Singapore was never actually supposed to operate the 737 on its own. These were originally destined for Silk Air, which doesn't exist anymore. So they've been folded into flying for Singapore Airlines, branded as Singapore. But yeah, we don't know the full details of this. There, this was, again, brought to our attention by Flight Global. It was disclosed in an earnings report. But yeah, they're canceling some 73 MAX orders, but they are swapping 787-9s for the 10s. 
And there are still more max orders, I believe. There's still 13 max eights and 15. That's not a max, but there's still plenty more maxes on order for Singapore. Just slightly less than before. And speaking of 737 max orders in its earnings reports this week, Southwest CEO Bob Jordan said that they expect the 737-7 I got yelled at last week for saying 737. So I will say both the 737-7 and the 737-7. 737-7. (laughs) They expect that to be certified in August. Boeing says, yeah, we're not going to say that because we got in trouble last time. We said anything about certification timelines, but they expect Boeing for its part says they expect 2023. Southwest says, hey, August. So it seems likely that that will actually happen this time. Sure. And once again, if you're in the market for a wide body aircraft, you personally, not if you're an airline. Not again. You too can own whatever Thai Airways is selling. Are they still selling A340 600s? So I didn't check the A340 600s. These are some updated 777s and all of the A380s are back on the market. Oh, hot sellers those. Yeah. Better act now before they're gone. (laughs) Right. Ty had toyed with the idea of bringing back a portion of its six-strong A380 fleet, as other airlines have done. They've now decided that that's not going to happen, and they are going to try and sell all six of them. At least two of them, from photos that I have seen, will probably need some sort of tractor to get them out of wherever they are stored. They do not look pretty. And certainly, they would need to be checked for some hydrogen embrittlement. Oh, I mean, the F-Tog's probably off the chart for those 380s, right? It's not good. But if you want a former Thai Airways A380, they're for sale. And then finally, which I feel like has become a pet project of mine, keeping tabs on Lufthansa Cargo. After the announcement of Dorothea von Boxberg's move to CEO of Brussels Airlines, Lufthansa Cargo has now announced that Ashwin Bott will take over as CEO. Bott is the current chief commercial officer for the airline and does not have nearly as cool of a name to be the CEO of a cargo airline, but will allow it because he seems like a nice guy. All right, then. I'm glad you <laughs> will allow it. Yeah, because it's really up to me. I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation with Robert Sumwalt. I hope that you all did as well. We're looking to have more conversations with folks who are in the industry, whether it's aviation safety, the business of aviation operations, what have you. If you've got suggestions for who we should have on the podcast, please, by all means, email us at podcast.fr24.com and leave us your suggestions. In the meantime, if you would be so kind as to leave us a rating or a review, or both really, we would appreciate that. Wherever you get your podcast, go ahead and and let other folks know how you feel about the show. It helps us reach new folks so that we can keep doing what we're doing. This has been episode 216 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.